Welcome to the Growth Hacking Culture Podcast. I'm your host, Ivan Palomino. This podcast is about thought-provoking ideas to scale up and growth hack performing and human-centric work cultures. My guests are experts on mindsets, skills, and science behind work cultures. I hope you enjoy this episode. So there has been a lot of talk about mindfulness as a tool for better work cultures. And what I want to discuss today is about, is there an impact really about mindfulness? Does it really help? Is there a science behind that? Because there is often this association with mysticism, religion. So, but let's move a little bit more uh, outside of this area because in the last 15 years, there has been a lot of research on mindfulness. And this is one of the topics that I want to understand today. And for that, I have invited a mindfulness teacher who is the regional head of the at Google, uh, the, a, a, a training that was born at Google, in fact, that is called Search Inside Yourself. Um, he's also the founder of, uh, of LAMA, which is the Leadership and Mindfulness Academy. He has written a book about creativity unleashed, 48 days of mindfulness to unlock your creative spirit. I will put a little, the, uh, the link just below. Um, but what is interesting is that he has moved from a very progressive career uh, in leadership positions. Uh, he has been the managing director of IDEO, one, one of the big creative forms of, of the world. And Gopi, I'm really happy to, to have you today. And I wanted to understand how did you move from this well-off uh, kind of nice life in the corporate life, uh, corporate world, and move into mindfulness. Was there any specific reason how you, why you did that transition? Well, Ivan, first of all, uh, thank you very much for having me on your show. It's an absolute pleasure to be here with you. Um, I've been really looking forward to having this conversation with you, and uh, yeah, uh, happy to share a little more about uh, you know that journey which you're asking me about. Uh, to be very honest with you, I never started off wanting to become a teacher. Uh, it so happened that uh, in 2014, uh, when I was living in uh, Zen Master Titnath Han's uh, monastery in Thailand, uh, there was an interesting incident that happened, and uh, the monks interpreted it for me as a sign that I should uh, become a teacher. Um, so it was a bit of a funny incident, actually, and uh, I didn't think much of it then. But then when I came back, it kind of uh, started growing on me and uh, I started feeling more and more that uh, my purpose was uh, somewhere here uh, around, you know, uh, spreading the message of mindfulness and maybe uh, touching more lives. Mm -hmm. uh, and so that's when I slowly started dabbling with teaching. Um, and eventually I made the transition from, uh, from doing what I was with the IDEO to uh, experimenting with teaching. Apparently, it went well because uh, people I taught, you know, they, they didn't throw rotten eggs at me, but they asked me to teach them a little more. Uh, it seemed like a good sign. So then I made the shift and uh, started teaching full time. Um, Very often, in fact, I hear the same, uh, the same story that when you want to share or teach to others, share a little bit of your experience and a little bit of the science or, or wisdom that you have acquired in life, it's never something that you wanted. It comes mm -hmm. naturally. It's like mm -hmm. life puts it somewhere in your in your path, in your journey, so that you become without really wanting it. But then when you are in front of this decision to make, you just accept it in, in, and embrace it. Mm -hmm. It is quite interesting that these principles of, of, of mindfulness are kind of an old heritage of humankind. It doesn't mm -hmm. belong to an one single culture, even though, uh, I mean, if you ask a little bit the Chinese, uh, some Indian populations, they will tell you, oh, it comes from my, uh, from my country. Right. How comes that in the last years, it has taken so much more visibility? And, and the example is clearly like some even tech companies embracing the, the mindfulness. Like how comes that Google decided to uh, create a, a specific training for their well-educated people? that it was regarding mindfulness. Can you tell me a little bit more about this necessity that it has come in the last years for mindfulness? For sure, for sure. That's a great question, Nikivan. 
And I think you're absolutely right when you say that uh, mindfulness actually doesn't have anything to do with religion. Hmm. Um, if you are, if you look at the word itself, it suggests basically what is mindfulness. We say often we say be mindful of the step. Uh, you know, when you're boarding the metro, it says be mindful of the gap. Hmm. Mindful is just be aware, and it's a it's an essential human quality actually that we all have, irrespective of religion. We all have the ability to be aware, aware of something, aware of uh, our body, aware of our mind, our thoughts, our emotions, our surroundings. So awareness is an inherent human quality. Mm. And there were some traditions perhaps which practiced it. But if you ask me, I would actually say that the concept of awareness has existed in a lot of places, not just in India, not just in the East. It's not just associated with Buddhism or Zen. Um, a lot of practices, contemplative practices. And if you look back many years ago, life was very different. It was not about, you know, getting an engineering degree or uh, or going to Harvard, but it was a, about acquiring certain life skills, right? And awareness was always uh, found to be an, a very effective way to acquire some of these skills like self-awareness or, or compassion for that matter. So it's existed for a very long time. And to your point about, you know, how this became popular in the last 20 years or so, you're, you're absolutely right that in the last 20 years, there's been an explosion of research around this subject. Hmm. Uh, and the reason for this is very simple, Ivan. Let's say 75 years ago, if you went running in a park, people would probably ask you who was chasing you. Right? Because the benefits of running were not known. But then came science, and then it was able to prove or establish to us that there were benefits of physical exercise. Now, the same thing has happened with mindfulness. Earlier, you could not study what the effect was on the brain. Because by the time you went to study the brain, you cut it open, you know, the guy was dead. Exactly. But now, with technology like MRI, fMRI, you're actually able to see what is happening in the brain in real time when you uh, practice these techniques. And therefore, because science has validated this, I think there's been a huge explosion. And of course, you know, Google and uh, engineers in particular like to see science and logic. Uh, so, you know, the following has increased because this is now science-based, it's evidence-based. Of course, monks across different traditions in different parts of the world have known this without the benefit of science for thousands of years. Mm. And they didn't need science to you know, tell them that this worked because they actually practiced it and the evidence was there in their lives, right? But science has come to the game now. And because of that, uh, I think a lot more companies, you mentioned Google. Um, Google started a wonderful program, I think uh, around 15 years ago called Search Inside Yourself, uh, based on a wonderful book again. Uh, it started off as a training program in Google and then eventually became a separate uh, a, a, an organization that actually delivers uh, the Search Inside Yourself program to people and companies across the world. Uh, and as more and more have tried this, they have understood that this is not religious. It's actually quite simple, easy to understand. And it makes a difference to the way you live your life. Mm. People are seeing the results, people see the benefits. You know, with this, you don't have to go to a monastery for very long, or you don't have to go and sit in a cave in the Himalayas or stand on one leg or, you know, grow a long beard, none of that stuff. Just bringing simple awareness to every moment has the power to transform your life. And that's what people are realizing. And therefore it's become a movement. What strikes me the most is something that you have said that we as humans, we all have this ability to, uh, for mindfulness. But the problem is that our brain is overloaded with crap. Uh, mm -hmm. So we don't know how to activate it, right? Mm -hmm. That's And that's the, the major, it's like our biological wiring of our brain is, is made to be a little bit like dreaming, unfocused, not in the, on the present, just thinking about the future, about the past. It's right. very difficult to, to activate it and it's very difficult to practice. And, we, when we don't know enough about mindfulness, we think, oh, I have to be a monk to, uh, to or I have to do hours and hours of meditation. But mm -hmm. I think that the, the, the real issue is that when 
is for people to start this first step. And this first step is, it can take a couple of minutes, but it's about regular practice so that we can start taming a little bit the, the irrational part of, a, uh, uh, of our brain. The other exactly. thing that, that you mentioned is about this contemplative practice that is kind of the core of, of, of mindfulness is the, our ability to observe our, uh, ourselves like in a third perspective so mm -hmm. that we can detect what is going on with uh, with ourselves. Mm -hmm. And the third thing that you, you have mentioned, yes, science has made, made it a little bit more accessible because we didn't understand why and what was happening in our brain. So we were associating it maybe a little bit with some mystic practices, with some magic that happens. And sometimes somehow we were associating also to to people who is for them is could be like a lifestyle to take a yoga mat and go to the parks and and then we have the the image in our brains of all these westerners going around with their yoga mats in the, in the middle of a park when there is more and as you mentioned that there is there has been scientific research and and I was impressed by the fact that there is even monks who have as a background being scientists and like I I, I think that there is this French monk. Um, uh, Mathieu Ricard, Mathieu Ricard, in fact, who is a, a real scientist, and he has been That's also right. contributing to the to the research be, uh, behind mindfulness. And That's it's right. really great that the the writer, the this guy who was who initiated search inside yourself in at Google, is also like a scientist. Is not like somebody who comes from the outside. No, no, he was a tech guy, and That's he right. could understand also these tech people, and he could understand what was what was missing so there is a lot of like confusion around about the defining and there is also misconceptions about mindfulness because mm -hmm. it's still not broadly understood mm -hmm. and somehow i tend to believe some people say you cannot explain it uh, you have to try it to un understand mm -hmm. what what it means mm -hmm. it is difficult to accept that because it's almost like accepted it's almost like faith uh, and for some people it might if you are a little bit analytical, it's a little bit difficult to accept. Gopi, in in your experience, uh, what are the biggest misconceptions that you have heard about mindfulness? Yeah, no, I think before I, I, I specifically respond to that, uh, Ivan, I want to touch upon a point that you made, which is uh, about how, you know, the mind has become so distracted today. Mm. Uh, now, some decades ago, if you looked at it, there were far fewer distractions, right? To start with, we did not have a digital extension of our body called the smartphone. Mm. And then the, the whole, uh, you know, tech revolution uh, happened. And there's just so much more information that's coming at us these days. Mm. We're constantly bombarded with information. And the simple fact is that as human beings, we are not wired to hold more than one thought at a time. Go ahead and try it right now. Can you hold more than one thought in your mind at any point in time? You cannot. Mm. So with the result that we're constantly switching between thoughts and, and tasks, therefore, right? And so much so that multitasking has been has become synonymous with efficiency. People think multitasking is a really cool thing and uh, they're actually very efficient. If you ask me, I say multitasking is when you're doing multiple tasks equally badly at the same time. Yeah, indeed. Right? And in a sense, if with this understanding, if we just take a step back, we just pause for a moment and realize that we can actually take awareness to each moment, I think that's the simplest understanding of mindfulness that we can have. It just starts there. Basically, it's nothing but the awareness of what is happening in this moment. It could be at the level of body. It could be what kind of thoughts are going on. It could be what kind of emotions are happening. And that in itself has the ability to bring in focus. It brings in calm. With calm comes clarity. Your ability to solve problems improves, right? The whole host of benefits that follow with that. So... I'm completely with you when you say, you know, this is misunderstood or misconstrued to be some magic or some mystical stuff. Let's talk about the misconceptions. I think the first and foremost misconception that people have is that this has to do with some religion, maybe Buddhism or, or Hinduism or Zen. Or, 
And while these religions maybe have had more of these practices in them, it's not necessary that, uh, you know, mindfulness only belongs to these uh, religions, right? As I said before, mindfulness is an essential human quality. Even if one didn't have any religion, one would have the ability to pay attention, right? Now look at this, for example, once we are born, it takes us some time to start storing information in our consciousness, right? And a lot of information gets stored in that consciousness. When you want to recall something from the storehouse, what do you do? You pay attention, right? Mm. Close your eyes and you try to remember and your attention goes and brings that information up for you. So this is basically at the core of mindfulness, the ability to pay attention, right? Instead of being in the past, instead of being in the future all the time, just being in the present moment, is at the core of mindfulness. So the first, uh, let's say, misconception is that this is around religion. Mm. I think the second misconception is that you have to be spiritually inclined to practice these things. And I don't think it's necessary. It may be a nice uh, bonus, but it's not certainly a necessity uh, that you have to be spiritually inclined to practice uh, contemplative uh, practices or mindfulness. Um, in a sense, if we, if we look at meditation itself, it's nothing but mental training, right? It's as simple as physical training. You go to the gym, you lift weights, you do dumbbells, you mm. get onto the CrossFit trainer. Similarly, meditation has different kinds of uh, mental training. And one of them is mindfulness, which is basically about paying attention to the present moment. And then I think the third thing is uh, around thinking that, you know, these are very mystical sort of practices which require you to, as I said before, stand on one leg or twist your body into yoga kind of positions. And while you can do that, you can even practice mindfulness when you're playing basketball on the North Pole. But you can practice it in everyday simple moments, whether you're having a cup of coffee like you are right now or speaking with somebody or drafting an email, or washing the dishes, or cleaning your car, every moment actually provides an opportunity to be in that moment. And as you do this repeatedly, there is a certain kind of energy that builds up, the energy of mindfulness. And that energy is something amazing, which allows you to uh, perform at your best. You mentioned creativity. I'm a big believer that uh, it actually enhances your creativity, opens up the tap of creativity, um, and a whole host of other benefits, including emotional intelligence. If you look at it today, one of the most important skills are supposed to be emotional intelligence skills. Um, a lot of us know that EQ is more important than IQ today. The 21st century skills, as they are called, are all skills which can be built through mindfulness, through the practice of mindfulness. We speak of uh, a VUCA world, a world which is volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And uh, I think we've moved past VUCA. People are now speaking of a world which is, uh, which is brittle, which is anxious, which is uh, non-linear, and which is incomprehensible. And in this kind of an environment, what are the skills that are required? The skills that are required are courage, open-mindedness, empathy, the ability to connect with another person. And these are the skills essentially that mindfulness can very easily help you build. So if we, for a minute, just park the mysticism and the, and the misconceptions around it and understand that this is actually something very easy, which is inherent already. We all have inbuilt mindfulness. And if we can just practice a little more and, and you know, day-to-day -day kind of uh, techniques, then uh, something amazing can actually happen. I, I like the last part of, uh, of what you share with us. The, the thing is that <clears throat> prior to that, you were mentioning that the fact that our brain is not made to for multitasking. When we do multitasking, it's basically that we are mindless. Like we are just doing things on the flow. Uh, we are not thinking about what, what we are doing. And then you say, yeah, we are not doing the good thing for any of the tasks that we are doing uh, in parallel. And 
What we tend to forget is that most of our brain is not the intelligent part. It's not the, the one that process analytical thoughts that make mm -hmm. us be more creative to who, who is process oriented. Most of our brain is, is in fact, like, is like long-term norms that we have fixed shortcuts patterns about how we should be reacting and it has been built because of our evolution like to in order to escape danger so there right. is our brain lights on in terms of in order to have quick or uh quick reactions into the 95 percent that is without thinking and mm -hmm. mindfulness allows you to balance a little bit more to wake up a little bit this part that is a little bit more analytical so there is one part that it might be the amygdala regulating all of our emotions, our perception of the, of the, our surrounding. Right. Very small parts surrounded with a bunch of norms of inside of our brain, but we have to wake up this, this area of our brain that is a little bit, that creates this awareness. And so in mindfulness, mm -hmm. and this is what I like the most about your sentence, is about a regular practice, how to wake up this rational part in order to do a checkup with us, a, a rational checkup, and this is what makes us more human when we can do transition in an easier mode from the emotional shortcut of patterns that we in order to take quick decisions into the rational part and mindfulness just creates the focus to wake up verify do a checkup and then get back to our, our normal life but that you can you cannot do it for once it's a little bit like you you mentioned going to the gym you, you will not get like a nice Buddy, if you go a couple of times, or even if you do it like with intensity for one week and then you drop it, it has to be trained so that it activates in a natural way. And it can be, you mentioned also, at any time you activate it like before the basketball game, before a, a, a meeting, uh, when you wake up in the morning, you can activate it in order to do a good checkup of where you, you stand and with the bunch of things that you have to do. Uh, and what we don't realize very often is the fact that in the chapter that where you mentioned the influence of the digital world is that this is not because we become less intelligent by browsing around in the, in a mindless mindless way in social media. It is because it is producing in our brain a, a, a an overload, a charge. We are using our engine, our our microchip inside of our, our brain without even noticing. So we don't even have the time to rest and be calm for a, a little bit, even though it gives us, give us the pleasure of checking up on people, comparing and all the stuff, this instant reward, it doesn't allow our brain to rest and to take control, to make the cognitive part of our brain to take control a little bit of what we are, uh, what we are doing. Mm -hmm. So. Absolutely. Regular practice is what it can make you become more mindful. It's not about the hours and hours of meditation, but of course, there is even scientific proof that the guys who have hours and hours of meditation, they can control better, more their, their emotions. There has been even research about even the control of pain uh, right. with, with the brain. And there has been even research about the level of happiness when you see the brain in of somebody, uh, fMRI of a, of a brain of somebody who practice uh, meditation, you see right. that the, the areas of the brain that are related, correlated to happiness are like fireworks. Absolutely. They can realize more if they are happy because we are turning into, into a society where we are not satisfied about anything because we don't have the time to think about what did I get today? Right, right, right. Yeah, and I think one of the key things in this, uh, Ivan, is um, the fact that we are most of the time on autopilot, mm -hmm. right? And you spoke about how, you know, some of these things are built in at an early stage, and then we're just acting based on assumptions, habit patterns, multitasking, um, and this leads to rumination, it leads to distraction, it leads to lack of focus, right? And yes, there is uh, the amygdala, uh, which uh, which a lot of us know about. But uh, I think the amygdala is, is, is not a complete villain. Uh, the amygdala is also responsible for our survival yes. uh, because uh, that's what has kept us alive, right? Over, over uh, eons. 
But in the process, what has happened is the amygdala has still retained its fight, flight, or freeze um, nature. So even well, back in the Stone Age, I think when we were, uh, you know, uh, looking for survival, it was very important because the amygdala saw a bear out there and said, oops, you know, run or hide or climb a tree. And that was very necessary then. But we don't uh, come across tigers and bears in everyday life today. However, the amygdala is still signaling, you know, fight, flight, freeze. Uh, and, and that puts us in a certain kind of a state. Uh, and just like you said, when we practice mindfulness, Essentially, what we're doing is we're strengthening the connection to the prefrontal cortex, the part of the brain that makes, you know, executive decisions, that's responsible for creativity, for art, language, analytical skills. So basically, the connections to this part of the brain are becoming stronger, just like muscles when you lift dumbbells. So through repeated practice, you're making these connections stronger. In fact, there's a very interesting uh, study uh, which shows that when we are at rest, for example, when you're not doing anything, or you, rather you think you're not doing anything, there's a certain part of the brain called the default mode network, which is active. And this part of the brain is actually responsible for rumination, repeated you know, thinking of thoughts, leading to dullness. And studies have shown that even with a little bit of practice of mindfulness, there are connections made to other parts of the brain which are responsible for concentration and focus. And these are the parts of the brain that light up even when you're not doing anything. Yep. Right. So it is not just during the practice, but science is now showing that the effect of what you do during the practice can last even after the practice. It is impressive that just by starting doing it, we can get already certain improvement. Absolutely, absolutely. And today you may not have time to go to the gym. And that's the beauty of mindfulness. You don't have to find time to go anywhere because every moment is actually giving you an opportunity to practice it. Every single moment is giving you an opportunity to practice it. If you're lifting a glass of water to take a sip, that's an opportunity to practice. Mm. So you don't have to go anywhere. You don't have to do any new stuff. You just have to change the stuff that you're doing a little bit and do it with more awareness, calm, clarity, happiness, automatically. Exactly. Do you think, Gopi, that is there a spe any specific reason why we, we hear about this practice of mindfulness at work uh, coming from tech companies? Why tech companies? Why is not uh, the, the big uh, Danones of Unilevers who started that? Uh, rather, we hear about Facebook, Google. Why tech people? I mean, in fact, <clears throat> they should be the ones who don't believe in the, this because they are a little bit more rational. Why they, did they embrace it in an, easier, uh, in an easier manner, the practice of mindfulness at work? Mm, that's a great question, uh, Ivan. And... Uh... I can only offer a response. I may not have the answer. I think tech companies are inherently more on the edge. Hmm. You know, innovation growth is usually fastest at the edges. And as a tech company, you have to be a little closer to the edge. I mean, I love uh, PNG and uh, you know Unilever and the companies you mentioned, and they do a fair amount of innovation as well. But if you look at the pace at which tech changes, it's almost by the day, right? And so to stay ahead of that game requires a certain kind of a mindset where you're constantly experimenting with new stuff. And to that extent, I think that might be one factor which prompted uh, some of these companies to experiment with this. And then they saw the results. And having seen the results, who doesn't want more creative or more innovative employees? Who doesn't want happier employees? Right. So then they were able to back that effort with more investment. And uh, and when tech companies do it, most of the world takes a closer look at it and say, oh, I want to be like Google. Or <laughs> That's totally true. Um, do Have you seen any, any studies 
about the results, the impact of mindfulness at work, something that where it, that is clearly there, like the bottom line that we see, for instance, increase in productivity, uh, increase in creativity, increase, I don't know, on, on the on people, <clears throat> people being a little bit more engaged at work when they apply principles of mindfulness? Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think today, actually, there are a lot of examples. Uh, initially, you know, it would have probably been, uh, you know, a couple of tech companies, uh, Google kind of companies. But I think today it's gone beyond just companies. Ivan, um, I'm happy to say that in the last maybe, I don't know, five to seven years, mindfulness has found its way into uh, non-government organizations, uh, governments, even the military. Oh. They're training their soldiers in mindfulness. Um, and why? Kids. It's now part of the curriculum in many schools. So it's being used in a, in, a, in a large number of ways, obviously because the benefits are becoming more and more apparent. There is a technique called uh, MBSR by uh, Dr. John Kabat-Zinn, uh, which is mindfulness-based stress reduction. And this is a very popular technique for post-operative care. So how are you able to work with patients who are coming out of you know, complex surgeries or even rehabilitation for that matter through mindfulness? So I think today it's really nice to see this gathering momentum. And when we speak of workplace well-being, I think mindfulness sits right there, not just as a technique. The technique is one aspect of mindfulness, but just purely as being aware. And even if you look at your elements of workplace well-being, which are your diversity, equity, inclusion, all of these stem from a basic quality of awareness, isn't it? Indeed, indeed. Yeah. And how do we build that basic quality of awareness through certain techniques of mindfulness? This, uh, this practice you, you, that you mentioned, MBSR, mindfulness-based stress reduction, in fact, only very recently, and, and I have to be very sincere with you, Gopi, uh, my interest in mindfulness is not something that uh, I got 20 years ago. It was, it is super recent. And I was like somebody who couldn't believe because these associations, and we have talked about the misconception associating it with religion, associating it mm -hmm. with people that, that for them is a lifestyle to go with yoga mats. So it took me time until I tried. And I tried it with the, with the, my minimum viable product, which is breathing exercises. Uh -huh. And I had, I mean, because there was nothing that was helping me for the control of my stress mm -hmm. other than that. Uh, I, I couldn't find anything else. I, I went into coaching sessions. I was trying to, to keep a little bit of a structure in my life, but it wasn't, it wasn't enough because I wasn't taking time to, uh, to be able to detect the early signs of my, my, uh, my stress. Mm -hmm. I had also the opportunity to read a little bit more about uh, mindful, uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction. I was impressed the fact that in fact, very uh, famous universities have it as part of the curricula in order to develop people who can really teach it because now there is science behind uh, that. It's not a crazy guy who invented it and, and talked about it in the 60s. Uh, Somewhere in Goa, we were talking about Goa just before. No, no, no. It is really professors who have developed a curricula that is having impact in our day-to-day -day life. I also liked, uh, Gopi, the fact that you describe mindfulness in your book, Creativity Unleashed. You, you, you claim that anyone can develop creativity through uh, mindfulness. Is it possible to make it, like to say, we take a big organization and do it at scale because it's not something that it is enough just to throw a one day or two days training. People need to practice. It's like mindfulness without practice is like the fact of knowing how my brain works or reacts is not enough. If I don't do it, I will never get to know what is the result. Is it possible to do it at scale? Because scale is the big 
the big reason why some organizations are a little bit resistant, say, they say, oh, but we will have to repeat this training several times, and then we have to, to pay Gopi to come uh, several times, and he's expensive. It is not. I, I'm joking. But <laughs> how can we do it at scale, Gopi? Right, right. That's a great question, Ivan. I'm so glad you asked this. Um, what I'd like to do is let's let's break this into you know a few smaller parts and then and then look at it. Um, let's start with the point that you made about you know how I how I say everybody is creative. Um, and I'd like to ask you. I mean, I'm sure you're an extremely creative guy, but when you look at kids, when you look at children, can you see that all children are pretty much similar in terms of creativity at up to a certain point we all draw the sun in the same you know crooked lines and you know put the smile and put those lines out we all draw the hills like that and you know a hut right yeah so and then children have wonderful imagination right we can make a tent out of a bedspread and uh, you know have a have a great uh, story around it so as children we are all extremely creative and then something happens. Conditioning starts. Exactly. We put them into school and we stuff them with knowledge and we take all the creativity out of them. And then we say now, you know, get creative when you start working. Right. And then, uh, you know, you want to call Gopi to conduct a creativity program. But if we were to realize here that Education today is preparing people for doing a certain job. It's not preparing them for finding their true potential. I think there's a big difference between these two things, which is why some of these practices when instilled at an early age can make all the difference. I, for example, don't have too much formal schooling. I was not sent to school for almost 15 years. Instead, I was taught practices like uh, mindfulness. Right. Of course, I made up for it later. I'm not completely illiterate, so don't worry. <laughs> um, but what I'm trying to say here is instilling some of these skills at a very early age and stage can make a big difference. Now, we don't do it. We, we People are working. And then we, we create innovation departments. And we want to create a culture of innovation and creativity. It can still be done. It can still be done. And that's the second part of uh, you know, your question that I'm going into. Now, if you look at essentially creativity and innovation, you've got great frameworks like uh, design thinking, and IDEO is really well known for that. Right? If you look at some of the core principles, what is design thinking? Design thinking is basically a framework that anyone can apply to creative problem solving. Right? It tells you to go empathize with the customer collect ideas, come back, brainstorm, create a lot of ideas, quickly prototype, fail, try again, right? Now, it's a great framework, but if you just step behind it, what are the qualities that are required for this framework to function? When you go and look at how your users um, would use a particular product, you need empathy. Mindfulness is something that can teach you empathy, right? With a calm, clear mind, you can come up with lots of ideas. Hmm. And when you fail, you need resilience to bounce back. Now, these are all qualities that something like mindfulness can, can help uh, people uh, learn. Now, the challenge is, how do you do this at scale? Because typically what happens is, you know, you, you have a, you know, a workshop, some guy comes, uh, you know, uh, there are 30, 40 people for two days. They do a workshop. They drink some beer. Everybody's happy. The box is ticked and, you know, we all go back to our regular lives. There is no sustainable habit formation. So I would not even think of creativity as something you do on a particular day in a particular area of your work. I actually think creativity is an energy that flows through all of us and it can flow all the time. Mm. Even if you're making an omelet, you can be creative. Right. So the important thing for this is to take practices like mindfulness and make them into habit. And I think this is where we at Lama are, uh, are different because the platform that we have created 
operates on a mindfulness-based pedagogy to help people acquire the skills that are required and form habit. So through a cohort-based model where you're working or learning this along with other people, because the social impact of you know, learning together with other people is very high. Cohort learning is four to five times more effective than DIY. And mindfulness-based learning is also three to four times more effective. So we combine some of these things and then using technology, we're able to allow people to go on a journey where mindfulness is not just something you do for two days with Gopi, but you actually make it habit in your life, right? So whether it's brushing your teeth in the morning or having a shower or writing an email or making a presentation or you know, uh, uh, solving a problem at work, you're relying on skills that are inherently in you. And you're not just depending on external frameworks because frameworks are like, you know, a patch you can put on it. But if what you have inside is powerful, then the framework is even better. And using certain levers, like I mentioned, mindfulness, cohort learning, uh, and most importantly, making this into sustainable habit you can actually create transformation at scale. And we are doing exactly that. Hmm. It's almost, Gopi, like in the same way that conditioning has been created because conditioning is the repetition of something and then it gets mm -hmm. anchored in, in our brain like, and then it becomes our beliefs. Like I'm an engineer, so I cannot be creative. Uh, right. that's, that's, that is a, a conditioning that a lot of, people in engineering believe. You have to be a marketeer to study marketing in order to be creative. Uh, I have seen the opposite, the other way, way around sometimes. Um, so in order to get rid of this formatting, you need to create uh, habits in order to replace these all unnecessary habits into, mm -hmm. new, uh, into new habits. And that's, I, I like this idea of combining uh, mindfulness in order to activate this thought of, oh, I'm going to solve a problem. Like in design thinking, you were talking about, it's about solving problems that are worthwhile is and being empathizing with the problem of someone like walking the dog and seeing that, oh, what if my neighbor could do this in a better way for walking the dog? Uh, to create repetitive uh, automatic thoughts that are about creativity and it can be with simple things you mentioned the uh, doing the omelet well that's uh, one way but it is about rep re repeating for anything that you see surrounding and for that you need to activate the ops I'm awake in my um, in my process oriented part of my uh, of my brain so that it, it can be I, I love this combination and by the way Gopi the, in another episode i was this doing the other way around discussion so it was a guy who was a specialist in design thinking and suddenly we ended up talking about some parallel with mindfulness and today uh -huh. in fact you have turned around the discussion from mindfulness you have ended up in design thinking this is quite impressive because i have the impression that both a process with a way of having getting the control of yourself can be training can unleash any meta skill that we need creativity Absolutely. is a, is a meta, uh, meta skill confidence is, is a uh, it, it could be a meta skill in, in certain cases so anything can be learned uh if we have the right mental processes in place yes. and i love Absolutely. what you're doing with uh with llama this is this is going to be a breakthrough is for me is like technology is there to help in make to to make something at scale to give a little bit of like the tools to control to track because we always want to see that we are progressing because alone sometimes we say oh did i do it did i don't do it I, I i like this this thought because we need to have like a reminder that we are getting there but it will be 0.1 percent 0.5 percent every single day until we reach a goal versus not doing anything and we have zero percent after one year right absolutely Absolutely. And I love the point you're making about, you know, getting that creative idea when you're walking the dog, Ivan. Uh, if you stop and think about it for a moment, when do all of us get creative ideas? It's when we are taking a walk, when we are sitting and watching a sunset, maybe having a shower, right? Yes. These, are, these are relaxed moments when suddenly, aha, you know, happens. 
through the practice of mindfulness, you can actually extend these moments and have them regularly, many more moments. You don't have to go to Goa and watch a sunset. In every <laughs> yeah, you could be driving in traffic and you can still have that quality of mind, which allows you to come up with that aha. And then life is a, life is a holiday. <laughs> but I will still do this thing with Goa because I have promised to my daughters to bring them once to Goa to, for the trip that I did back in the days when I was younger. <laughs> that you should This mindfulness is not a replacement for Goa ever. <laughs> Indeed. Gopi, you have kind of made it your, your mission to uh, create, to, to, cre to, to go at the scale in terms of the awareness of what mindfulness can bring to the workplace in particular, because this is like a specific type of population that is suffering the most, where the pain is the biggest, in fact, because we are suffering with the, with the stress, we don't feel aligned with the purpose, we, uh, mm. companies are also suffering because they, there is a lot of talent who they decide just to leave. Uh, because it's not aligned anymore with any purpose that, uh, that that we have. We don't know exactly what uh, what we want. There is there is a cognitive dissonance between the, the values of a company and the values that we want for ourselves, or the imagination that we had. Is this the person that I wanted? Did I did I want to become an accountant that is just stamping stuff in a, at work? So there is a lot of a need. So you uh, of a need of for employees to embark on on alternatives. Because mm -hmm. training do not solve the problem. Like to have just a, a one-off training, uh, going as as you, you and you mentioned it, like watching and learning in LinkedIn learning uh, is not enough. You are alone. You need a little bit of guidance. You need a little bit of feedback. That's why cohort is good because then you get feedback. Oh, this happens to me. I I, I love this idea to get back to the human interaction and relatedness that we really need in order to embark in in, in change because change cannot happen with PowerPoints, definitely. So you have started a set of global events to democratize the accessibility of mindfulness at work. Mm -hmm. Tell me a little bit more. Uh, so actually, Ivan, uh, on one of my monastic uh, stints, I had an aha moment when I saw the monks in the monastery, whatever they did, they were happy. There was a certain joy and grace and ease with which they would do everything, whether it was cooking or cutting the vegetables or washing the dishes or cleaning the toilet. They were happy doing it. And that made me ask the fundamental question, why is it that more of us cannot be like that? Why do we have to go to a monastery to be like that? And when I looked at, you know, especially the world outside, the working world, I won't say necessarily the corporate world, but the working world, I saw that there is this perceived dichotomy between life and work. And people talk of work-life balance not being there and getting stressed out. And I personally think that these days, there is almost no distinction between life and work. At one point, we used to think of work as something we do in order to have a life, a good life. We earn money at work in order to have a good life. But increasingly, I think the boundaries have disappeared. We are almost working all the time. And then there is life that's happening around us. So instead of work-life balance, I think we need to find balance mm. in life. Yes. And if we're able to do that, then everything starts to flow beautifully. So this became my holy grail at some point. And the search for this has, uh, has taken me, made me into a teacher, uh, helped me teach across five continents, uh, build Lama. And through these series of summits, which we want to have, which will eventually culminate in a two-day global summit in 2024, we want to bring more awareness to the whole idea of mindfulness at work. And how do we build wonderful workplaces of the future where well-being is the norm? It's not the exception, right? So well-being is not a, a is not a perk anymore. It is not a, you know paying the gym membership of your employees, but it's about creating an environment where they can not just survive, but thrive. An environment which brings out their best. Because as a as an employer, it's very simple. If you were to recognize this and if you were to facilitate this, 
you'd actually be furthering your own cause because a happy employee is a productive employee, is a creative employee, and it's going to impact your own bottom line, right? So through these series of summits, this is what we want to do. We want to bring the focus on to helping people understand that workplace well-being is, is, not, is not something that we should be thinking of as an exception, but we should be making it part of everyday workplace cultures. Mm. And through these summits, we aim to do exactly that. So we're bringing together corporate leaders, uh, thought leaders, uh, practitioners, teachers like myself to, to discuss how we can create workplaces of the future where well-being is the norm. And, and uh, I'm happy to say that Dubai is actually one of the places that has really embraced uh, workplace well-being, right? I'm really happy to see that there's a, uh, there's a minister for happiness, there's a happiness street. Um, <laughs> yes, so you saw it, huh? It made almost, you know, logical sense for us to uh, say that we would want to have one of our very early summits in uh, in Dubai. So we've just had a very successful summit in uh, in Bangalore last week, uh, and we will be having a summit in Dubai on the 22nd uh, of June, uh, a half-day summit. Uh, details will follow, and uh, yeah, we're hoping to take this across the world and create more awareness around the importance of this whole thing. Gopi, I'm going to be putting also the link about the, for the page of this uh, well-being at, at work event for Dubai. I, it is lovely and refreshing to speak with some, somebody like you. Uh, what I have to take away from this is, uh, is there is a lot of wisdom on what, uh, what you say. Uh, I like your journey because it is not built only on the, the, the um, mystical direction it is it is built into a balance between finding yourself from a corporate life where you have acquired a lot of knowledge on in terms of what employees need and bringing in fact your personal passion in order to solve the problems for, for in the day-to-day -day life of uh, of employees I, I I love your personal story I love by the way, I'm going to start reading your book uh, on creativity. I will be attending also the uh, the um, this, the summit for for Dubai. It was really lovely, Gopi, to to speak to you. Thank you very much for your time, Ivan. Uh, this is my life's purpose, and uh, I thank you immensely for giving me an opportunity to express myself freely. It's been absolutely beautiful uh, speaking with you. I've completely enjoyed our conversation and yeah, more power to mindfulness and may we continue to, you know, touch more lives. Thank you so much. Thank you, Gopi. So I will be putting the, um, the, the links from, for Lama, mylama.co uh, would be putting the link for your book on creativity. Uh, and probably I will put, be putting also your LinkedIn profile because if somebody wants to ask you a question, I'm pretty sure that you will be happy to, to answer. Of, course, of course, I'm I'm very uh, accessible and I'm happy to answer. In fact, I answer every single question that people ask me. Sometimes I may be a little late, but I will answer. Thank you, Gopi. Thank you. Have a great day. Ivan, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure.